Welcome to The Bit, a podcast from Upstream, the international oil and gas newspaper. This is the week of February 6th. My name is Luke Johnson. I write for Upstream, and with me today in Houston is Bureau Chief Noah Brenner. Hey, Noah. Hey, Luke. I write for Upstream, too. Oh, fancy that. Well, this week, Noah and I are going to talk about the impending rise of oil field services costs in the U.S. onshore sector. And then later, we'll be joined by Kat Schmidt to look at an emerging opportunity in a shale play down in Mexico. But let's focus first here on the U.S., where the onshore rig count is rising by the dozens, almost every week, it seems. Uh, The mighty Permian Basin has been the leading uh, basin in that. But other places like Oklahoma, in particular, are starting to look much stronger now than they were um, just a year ago. So uh, it was all just a matter of time, I guess, as oil prices started to stabilize around $50. But also because prices for oil field services have been, to put it bluntly, dirt cheap. Uh, These services companies have frack fleets and other equipment. They have been desperate to just keep working at whatever price they could. But as we keep hearing more and more, operators could be in for something of a rude awakening as we get deeper into 2017. So Noah, is it fair to say that we're at something of an inflection point in uh, as far as future services pricing? Yeah, I definitely think so. You know, I think there are some that would maybe claim that the inflection point happened even late into the fourth quarter of 2016. And that certainly depends on the service line that you're looking at. But if you were to take something like uh, prop and prices, sand prices, I think those definitely started increasing late in 2016. When it came to the actual, um, you know, the actual pressure pumping prices that people were, were paying, I think those really probably stabilized late in the fourth quarter and then now are, are definitely picking up. And that's, as you pointed out, that's driven by the rig count um, you know, on a gross basis, but also sort of, you know, specifically these rigs are going into the Permian Basin by and large. And so, you know, companies are trying to move frack fleets down there. Companies are trying to, to relocate other services down there. But I mean, with such a such a focus on one small part of of the oil field world even though it's it's a large basin there's a lot of capacity down there you know things are really heating up fast in the permian specifically so we're talking uh, overall services costs rig rates uh you mentioned sand and prop in um I the mean, price, everything the price of work what 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 other sorts of things i mean is, is it as far as midstream contracts and things like that too um you know it's hard to know the midstream contracts are are oftentimes longer term or if companies don't have firm takeaway already booked then you know they'll, they'll be trying to to book capacity where they can you know tudor pickering holt definitely flagged up the possibility that uh that companies could end up paying more on their midstream costs in the coming year um, but, I mean, other things, you know, Schlumberger uh, flagged up specifically um, directional drilling. Um, you know, Baker Hughes, uh, other, other companies had flagged up coil tubing. And so it's really, you know, everybody's been talking about specifically sand because of the, the increases in the amount of sand that's being pumped per stage and overall per well, as well as just pressure pumping in general, because that was one area where a lot of companies had taken a lot of capacity off the market, had cold stacked it. And we're really waiting for prices to increase. You know, Weatherford bowed out of the fracking business because it was a money-losing proposition. Baker Hughes essentially, I mean, we'll say got out of the fracking business. I mean, really turned away from the fracking business. They still have the the large interest in BJ Services because it wasn't sustainable. And so 
now that's one area where we're seeing the market tighten very, very rapidly. But this is, I mean, you're going to be looking at service cost increases across the board. Maybe the one area where you might see a little bit lower cost increase might be in um, drilling, land drilling rigs, which still seem to be quite well stocked, in large part because drilling rigs have gotten so much more efficient. Whereas the amount of pressure pumping of horsepower and sand needed to frack each well has increased, really the the number of wells or you know the amount of rigs you need to drill a set number of wells has decreased. Uh, so that's one area where efficiencies really are keeping costs down. But in other areas, you can only get so efficient. I mean, at some point, you gotta you gotta pay up. Yeah. And I, how much of this is strictly because demand is increasing, um, and how much is it? just uh prices were so low for so long are they just kind of snapping back to what you know snapping back to reality well i mean it it really is both i'm not sure that i could quantify it i'm not sure anybody could really quantify how much of the increase is is due to you know overall general use and how much is it prices coming back to a new normal i will say that even with these increases and i mean let's say let's ballpark it at a 20 percent increase for hydraulic fracturing services that 20% increase still gets us nowhere near back to what prices were at the real boom of fracturing, which was probably, I mean, let's say like 2011, maybe, when stuff was really short. We hadn't had the big build-out in fracking equipment that, that we have had. Um, so, you know, oil field services companies are looking at this as, you know, we're getting back to, we're no longer pumping jobs at, at loss. We're no longer just keeping, you know, keeping equipment working and, and trying to keep people on the job and, and maintain the capacity to perform. Um, they're now at break even, maybe. I mean, and so that's another thing to think about is that's these companies need to return to profitability at some point. And so the 20% is kind of just the start, or I mean, maybe it's 10% on certain jobs or something, but I mean, Dave Lassar, uh, for anybody who wants to learn a lot more about this subject, read the Halliburton call um, that came out last week. You know, Dave Lassar said he doesn't see that there's going to be uh, the ability for the customer to hold prices down. You know, he says everybody wants the availability of equipment when they want it, where they want it, and how they want it and basically told his customers they're going to have to start paying for it. Mm. And I guess baked into these increasing costs are just the costs of restarting a lot of this equipment, getting a lot of this out of stacking. Exactly. Uh, I saw an estimate today from a research firm that something like 80 to 90 percent, they estimated that something like 80 to 90 percent of the fracturing fleets uh, that are active in uh, in the major basins, you know, let's say the Permian Basin, uh, are contracted. Now, that's not 80 or 90% of the total fracturing capacity in the U.S. I mean, a lot of companies have cut their, their active fleets down by about half. You know, let's take Weatherford as an example. On their call today, they said that um, they had nine active fleets, uh, a tenth fleet, uh, or I'm sorry, nine active spreads, a tenth spread was warm stacked, and then they had 10 cold stack spreads. Those cold stacked spreads were going to cost $5 million to $7 million per spread to reactivate. And that's another thing that's, you know, I guess that's, causing some of this price increase is that companies were willing to pump a job, you know, talking hydraulic fracturing, companies were willing to pump a job with an existing fleet that was active or existing spread that was active at a rate that would just kind of keep that spread active. But if you want them to bring a, a spread out of cold stack, if you want, you know, whether it's Halliburton, whether it's Weatherford, you know, whether it's anybody, if they are going to have to reactivate a fleet, there's that upfront cost that's going to have to be added in to the equation, and somebody's going to have to cover that in order for that fleet to come back out. The idea that a company is going to bring a fleet out of cold stack just to lose money on it and to depreciate the equipment and wear out their fluid ends and, and you know their 
their consumable type of products, you know, is that's not going to happen. It sounds like there is, I mean, just based on some of the, well, we're kind of midway through earnings season now, but some of the conference calls we've been hearing, it kind of sounds like there is something of a disconnect between operators and the services providers in terms of how big and how fast these increases are actually going to come along. I think operators expect the costs to rise maybe a bit more incrementally, uh, while the contractors are anticipating a pretty big jump pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big disconnect at least in what would be interesting. There's a big disconnect at least in what a lot of operators are telling investors mm-hmm. and what they're communicating when when you look at their capital spending budgets and how many wells and how much production they're expecting to be able to bring on for X number of dollars that they're spending. Um, you know, dig through that fine print, and oftentimes you're seeing or or, or listen to these calls, and and oftentimes um, with that there is an assumption, a built-in base assumption of something like single-digit price increases for oil field services, and so you know that's a blended blended average, and and maybe they're able to pick up some additional savings in one spot. I'm not really sure where that would be um, to offset you know these increases in hydraulic fracturing, but what the service companies are saying they're seeing on the ground in terms of you know 15 to 20 percent um increases that they're able to push through versus what operators are saying is kind of baked into their guidance there's definitely a disconnect there and you know the impact really could be significant you know there were some figures from from wood mckenzie that pointed out that if you put a 10 percent uh, cost inflation factor into service costs, they estimated that that uh, increased break-even prices by six percent. And when you're dealing with you know uh, an oil price that's at roughly fifty-two bucks maybe right now, and break-even for the basin is fifty bucks, um, you know a five or five or six or seven percent increase in the break-even costs puts some things out of the money. Um, and it's hard to say that on a play-by-play basis. I mean, generally, the Permian Basin is going to be your lower-cost basin. But where, I guess, one of the things that gives me pause um, is when you start looking, the Permian is your lowest-cost basin right now in the U.S., except for when companies are paying $60,000 an acre to get into the Permian. And so you take your baseline economics, you layer on a really... Um, a pretty significant acquisition cost for a lot of these independents that are trying to reorient down into the Permian and your margins get real thin. And then if you add in oil field inflation, you know, service inflation, all of a sudden there's not a lot left there as a profit margin for the operator. And and that'll depend on things like downspacing, how successful are they in proving up some of these new horizons and, and just putting more wells per section in there. Um, but yeah, your margin for error gets gets low. Mm-hmm. So finally, I, I guess we've kind of talked about this in the past, but just broadly speaking, what does the services marketplace look like now compared to the height of the oil price? You know, two or three years ago. Obviously, there's been a lot of bloodletting, uh, mergers, bankruptcies, changes in strategies. W- what are we looking at now? Well, I mean, it's. You know, it's really interesting to me in that you've seen the rise of um, the private pressure pumpers, you know, looking specifically at hydraulic fracturing. We've had, you know, the likes of, of Keen Group and Mammoth um, uh, go public uh, through these IPOs, and they were able to to consolidate some assets, um, bought some assets on, you know, at auction or, or from other companies that were looking to get out. And then you've got a couple of the you know, the larger pressure pumpers, companies that were thought of as, as kind of stalwarts within the industry, namely Baker Hughes and Weatherford. 
uh, and Baker um, contributed, got a little bit of cash, not a lot of cash, a little bit of cash for their fleet and contributed it um, to uh, to this joint venture with um, CSL, a, a private equity firm, uh, and it contributed its allied platform. And so they remade uh, BJ Services. But that was Baker Hughes, which, you know, not three years ago, you know, three, four years ago, was talking about, oh, you know, they're going to engineered completions, and they were going to bring a level of science that couldn't really be be duplicated by some of these smaller providers and only frack the stages that needed to be fracked. I mean, we've really seen fracturing go from, if you had been at Sarah Week, say three years ago, um, four years ago maybe, and, and talked about what's the future of fracturing, all these companies were saying it's more science and it's more technical and we're going to you know only put sand where sand is needed. And instead the market has utterly and completely shifted into what, I mean, I guess other people have called it, you know, I'll steal their term, the commoditization of the frack market. And what we've realized is that it doesn't really matter. You can overwhelm the formation with sand. Like, let's not be technical about it. Let's just blast the living hell out of it with as much sand as we can get. It's the the um, uh, propageddon has been a term, or frackalocalypse. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and other companies, you know, and this is where we get to Weatherford. Weatherford's looking at implementing essentially the Baker Hughes strategy of, okay, let's either merge our, our fracturing fleet, which is significant at roughly a million horsepower, Let's merge it with someone else that's willing to sort of take this on as their core business, um, or let's just sell it off altogether. And you know, it's it's um, it's tough in a commoditized market like that. The companies that were hoping to be able to gain market share through a value-added strategy, you know, we're not going to frack. We're just going to frack better. We're going to frack smarter. And it it turns out that that's not really something that the market's willing to pay for um and so they're they're getting out of the business and seeding it to companies that have uh lower fixed costs and and are willing to kind of play in that space hmm. interesting stuff well you can uh follow all the latest on the frack market at upstreamonline.com the bit will be back right after this Welcome back to The Bit. Ever since U.S. shale operators unlocked the potential of tight oil and gas bearing formations, explorers have eyed the vast expanses south of the U.S. border in Mexico that could yield similar success. Well, an upstart Canadian company called Renaissance Oil aims to do just that. Latin America correspondent Kat Schmidt joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Kat. Hey, Luke. So... Tell us just a little bit about Renaissance. What? Are, who are they? Uh, well, they're based in Canada, but they have hired on um, some technical people with ties to some of the pioneers of the U.S. shale uh, companies like Mitchell Energy, Anadarko, and EOG Resources. Uh, they locked up four blocks in the country's uh, first onshore round in 2015, and uh, now they have bought a share in a legacy service contract with Pemex that could turn into one of the early unconventional projects that will give outside operators a crack at an interesting Mexican play. So this contract is focused in the Chicantepec area, kind of the 
this this tight formation that Pemex Pemex has seen a lot of promise in, but um, hasn't really produced. And this block is called Amatitlan in Veracruz state. Um, and Luke Oil has been involved in it for a long time, and now Renaissance is farming in, and it's kind of a complicated arrangement. Can you just kind of walk us through a little bit how this how this agreement works? Sure. So um, Luke Oil, um, the, of course, the Russian company, uh, they did a deal in 2015 with Pemex to, for uh, one of their service legacy service contracts. This was the old model in which Pemex paid, uh, tried to get more help developing its fields by paying um, for services on a block to help increase production uh, or whatever. So what Renaissance has done now is to buy a stake in that contract. The expectation is that this old version of the contract, the legacy contract, is going to be migrated into a new um, exploration and production contract, and that's kind of still churning its way through the bureaucracy. Um, But in the end, the expectation is there will be a new exploration and production contract um, where Renaissance will uh, work and be in the driver's seat in terms of operations, and Luke Oil and Pemex will also um, have a share. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Complicated indeed. So basically, you have um, some known shale people in the U.S. who are getting a really close look at this play and the various different stack potential that lie within it. Um, Of particular interest to them are upper Jurassic shales at about 11,000 feet below the surface. Um, They were able to go visit um, the Poza Rica area in Mexico and collect about 120 samples, uh, take them home, and do some analysis on them. Um, the results, they like it, and they like it a lot. Um, they say that the area has the potential for substantial volumes and decent producibility. Um, there are some decent comparisons uh, to the Eagleford um, as well. So one of the uh, geologists was asked to uh, restrain his enthusiasm, but he also said that he believed that um, it could evolve into, quote, one of the world's premier tight oil plays on a global scale, unquote. So those are some those are some big words. Um, Noah, this this region, this Chicontepec region is one that uh, Pemex has touted for quite, quite a long time, but, is, you know, doesn't really have much to show for it. Uh What's been holding them back? I mean, what what's the what's the hang up? Well, that's yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, Chicontepec has not languished for lack of investment necessarily. It, it's been sort of Pemex's Eldorado for a number of years. It was always seen as as the area where there was a significant amount of oil in place that could then be tapped to try to stem the decline. Mexico's overall Pemex's overall production decline. Those primarily a result of um, declines at Cantarell. But it's been really essentially, it's kind of baffled. Pemex, as well as as a lot of the companies that have worked on it, uh, my understanding of it, it's you know, Chicontepec is a carbonate. It's not necessarily a, what we would think of as a, a true shale. And like I said, my understanding is that geologically, it's quite complex with a lot of of faulting, a lot of um, uh, just I guess what would be called unquiet geology. Uh, in a lot of ways, it, it's it's. It's not just smooth sailing, and I know that had frustrated operators who were looking at it, you know, the possibility of drilling some longer laterals and things like that, and instead they've had to, to sort of focus on, like I said, they were drilling some J-wells and, and just some different things. It, the U.S.-style shale development hadn't necessarily worked, and a lot of people sort of compared it to uh, the Monterey shale play, or, or the Monterey play out in California, where USGS had 
come out and said that it was one of the sort of most promising plays out there, incredible amount of oil in place. And the production, sort of the producibility of it, um, caused USGS to, to sort of revise its, its estimates. Um, and it's, Monterey has remained a sort of a stickler in the oil industry side for you know, remains to this day. And so it's been, yeah, it's been tricky for sure. Well, uh, geological challenges are one thing, but in a country like Mexico that has virtually no unconventional oil infrastructure in place, uh, what above ground challenges might Renaissance face um, as they go into this? Well, uh, logistics is a huge, uh, and service efficiency is a huge factor in, in any shale play. And um, it'll be, it remains to be seen how well that piece of it will translate to the U.S. Anytime you're working on uh, onshore areas in Mexico, uh, you have the potential for security issues as well as, uh, you know, issues with uh, landowners and social activism. Um, that's part of the new uh, contract framework following reforms that companies are still very much uh, working through. Um, all of that said, um, it will be really interesting to see what happens with this play because I had heard a fair number of complaints that part of the difficulty historically um, with Chicontepec, which has multiple zones of pay, so there's the Chicontepec formation itself and then multiple other tight zones and shales below it, was that um, a lot of the Pemex service contracts have a tendency to be pretty specific in what they involve and what they don't involve. So, uh, you know, I had heard some folks from the service side say, hey, we'd like to experiment more or do something different. And there were limitations on how much they could do um, with that. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this shale uh, experiment here when the folks in charge of the block have some more autonomy as to how they can uh, handle the project. Well, I think that's a really important point because you know, we've discussed why didn't Chicontepec work? Why hasn't it lived up to to the to the hype in many ways? And sort of in looking at this as a Chicontepec deal, it might not really be Chicontepec that ends up being the main producing driver here. As you had said, it was the shales that they had evaluated that they really really liked. And I think that um, trying to apply some of these some of the U.S. style shale developments um, to the shales themselves, rather than than sort of continually beating our heads against a complex Chicontepec geology. Um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of sort of things that really haven't been tried that don't necessarily, um, you know, the, pre the previous past or the previous history, production history of Chicontepec is, is likely probably not as applicable if we're looking at the, the underlying pimienta and things like that. And the beauty of it is that you do have these multiple zones, so you have many options for how you can think about trying to get oil out of the rock which is sometimes more cooperative than other times yeah i mean in the permian it's if if one zone doesn't work try the next one yeah. and so i think that mindset is probably going to to flow out of the u.s as well all right well just to wrap up here um mexico has promised to open up its shale fields to uh global bidders um since the country announced its oil reforms but that bid round seems to be getting pushed back <laughs> again and again. Um, so assuming this Renaissance project is successful, when could we start to see more of like a formal push into Mexico's shale sector? 
Uh, there, there are two factors delaying the implementation of the shale round. One is low price of oil, low commodity prices. Uh, they wanted, you know, the regulators want to be strategic about it and do it at a time where the projects are not all automatically uneconomic. Um, secondly, Mexico has not yet finished finished its regulatory regime uh, for handling things that are necessary in shale, such as hydraulic fracturing. Um, so that that piece of um, the environmental and technical part is still not done. So, uh, you know, we've seen improvements in oil price. They've been working on this uh, shale regime. So hopefully soon, um, we, they've said that they hope to see that happen before the end of the term of uh, Enrique Peña Nieto in 2018. So. All right, well, thanks a lot, guys. That's a really interesting story. The Bit will be back right after this. Welcome back to The Bit. The young presidency of Donald Trump has been superficially great for the oil industry. Among the array of executive actions he signed in his first week of office was an order to fast-track approval of two controversial pipelines, Keystone XL and Dakota Access. Former ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson is now the U.S. Secretary of State, and Obama-era regulations on water and air protections are dropping like flies. The sailing seems to be smooth so far. But as we have said numerous times on this podcast, the oil industry is a global industry, and the protectionist and isolationist policies that Trump is making good on should be cause for concern. The approval of the Keystone Pipeline came with one important condition— it must be built with American-made steel. Even if that is somehow not a violation of World Trade Organization rules, it raises questions about the project's economic viability for pipeline operator TransCanada. Meanwhile, U.S. relations with Mexico have quickly soured after Trump vowed to move forward with his controversial border wall, which he claims will be paid for with a 20% tariff on Mexican goods. We'll see how willing Mexico is in the future to work with U.S. companies vying for lucrative contracts in that country's oil sector. And the U.S. travel ban, hastily slapped on a handful of Muslim-majority countries, including Iraq and Iran, left a lot of multinational companies scratching their heads. Few have spoken publicly about the impact of the travel ban, but at least two oil giants, Halliburton and Chevron, have been forced to respond to the consequences of the ban in at least some capacity. It has become clear that even Trump is not fully aware of the consequences of some of his actions. And to be fair, his policies may indeed ultimately be a boon for many smaller U.S. independents. But at the very least, political predictability in the U.S. is no longer a luxury globetrotting companies can take for granted. That does it for another episode of The Bit. Thanks for listening. The Bit is a production of NHST and is produced by me, Luke Johnson. RDG provides the bumper music. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at thebit at upstreamonline.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please visit our website at upstreamonline.com, your home for independent oil and gas news. We will be back sometime with more oil and gas news. But until then, keep your bit spinning to the right. Is this mic even on?